Recorded live. Go over some stuff that we've uh, already <coughs> talked about, but um, I-, I think that uh, there's so much here that it is good for us to uh, go over these things. Now, up here in this first uh, part of this chapter 12 in, in Hebrews, he's been uh, speaking to them concerning the matter of chastening. And most times when we consider what chastening is, we think of it as like we've been chastened by our parents when we did something wrong. Well, if that was the case with the Lord's chastening, then we would just be, we would be receiving that sort of thing all the time because there's never a time when we haven't done something wrong. And certainly it's not the big things. You know, in our, with our parents, they kind of forbear with us and they don't whip us for everything that we do. But when we finally cross the line, you know, I, I saw a picture. It used to be up there in Ken's barbecue up in uh, in uh, Live Oak. And it showed this woman with her hair is just standing on end. And uh, the caption under the thing, she says, uh, she says, I had one nerve left, and you just got on it. <laughs> and... Uh, that's kind of the way that our and the scripture says they chasten us after uh, for their own pleasure. In other words, when they just got enough that they couldn't take it anymore, then they, you know, that was it. I mean, you know, we, we've all been in the schoolroom when the teacher finally got enough, and she said, "That's it," <laughs> you know. And then, and that that was that's kind of how we think of what chastening is. But when the Lord speaks about what chastening is here. That's not the picture, because the Lord's chastening is the constant dealings that he has with his children and the trials and troubles of life that are brought upon us in his course, not specifically because we did something and now the Lord's going to teach us a lesson, but the constant dealing with us as sons. And if a man be without this chastening, the Lord said, then he is a bastard and not a son. So we're not desirous of being without this chastening. Now, he says here in verse 7, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteth not? But if ye if be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, everybody, not with the, the ones that did the most wrong, but everybody, but you're all. Uh, partakers. And if you're not, then you're bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we've had fathers after our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Now that's the contrast. Our, our parents chastened us after their pleasure, but the Lord chastens us for our good. Now, I'm sure that every whipping that I got was I needed. But I know that some of the whippings I got was because my daddy or my mama needed it. You know what I mean? I mean, they just had enough, and they, they were going to get, they, they were going to deal with it. So that's kind of 
what he's talking about there. He says they did it, uh, you know, when it got to that point, but the Lord is not in that fashion, but he does it for our benefit. And uh, the thought, so how much more should we, we rather be in subjection unto our fathers, uh, to the Father of Spirits, and live for they barely for a few days chasing us after their own pleasure, pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. There's nothing, no ulterior motive in the chastening of the Lord but to bring us to the place where we are conformed to the image of Christ. That is the purpose of it. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. None of the things that we go through in life that are not pleasantries are happy times only. They're not present times, joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather let it be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now, of course, we keep coming back to this, and it's needful that we understand that the book of Hebrews is written to those Hebrew Christians, by and large, who are, have been raised in the Jewish faith, and under the law of Moses, they have believed in Christ. And now, as time has gone on, the things, the troubles and things that they've come into because of being followers of Christ, has many of them have started to say, well, wait a minute. Maybe we need to go back. You know, and, and back to the old way, at least it wasn't as tough as this is. This is bad. Well, that's what he's talking about, these chastenings. I mean, the Lord's dealing with them. And, and these hard times have come upon them. And there are many, you know, it's always man naturally will go back to that which he is most comfortable with. I mean, the food that you like, by and large, is shaped because of the things that you ate when you were a child. And the, the likes and dislikes are things that got in your mind when you were growing up. And if you don't believe that, just go to another country somewhere where they eat roaches and things like that and see how much you'd like it. But now, if you was a little kid and you grew up eating roaches and crickets and things like that, you would, that would just be a thing you'd look forward to. So that's kind of the way that we are by nature. I mean, that's really what... Uh, is Solomon says in the book of Proverbs when he's speaking about raise up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he'll not depart from it. There is a basis of that in the natural way that we are. We do tend to have a tendency to go back to those things that were ingrained in us. 
And so it would not be unusual to find these these, uh, Hebrew Christians sort of having a tendency to go back, especially when times get hard. I mean, you know, when things get tough, we always, the first thing that comes into our mind is, well, we need to quit. This is too much trouble. You know, it was easier when we were going back over here, and that's kind of the way it is. But uh, so he's saying to them, now look, no chastening for the prayer for time seems to be joyous. He's not carrying them, look. These things that you're going through right now are just wonderful. And you should be just rejoicing through them. No, when they were seeing their their brethren, some of them killed and persecuted and all sorts of things, this was not a thing that encouraged, that was an encouraging thing in itself. But he said, no chastening for the present time seems to be joyous, but afterwards is when it yields its peace to you know, when we've gone through a, a, a tough time, I mean, just like, well, I'm sure Brother Al could have this being fresh on his mind with going through this heart attack that he had. I'm sure that when he was, that's over with and he's had time to think back on it, he is blessed by that which he went through because he knows that as dark as the time was when he was there, the deliverance from it and the things that he learned in the midst of it are far more. Uh, important and blessed. Uh, and so uh, no chastening seems to be pleasant at the present, present time, but afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, not every whipping that I got as a child exercised me, but some of them did. And what that means is that it bore fruit. It was that which... I knew what I did wrong, and I knew I didn't want to do that again, and I, that, that was the thing that I was exercised by. And that's what the chastening of the sons of God is, is that which would exercise us and cause us uh, to be made mindful of those things we need. And then he says something here, and this is something that ought always be on the minds and hearts of the children of God, is that we know that we are not, singular. We are individuals, but we're individuals who have been called together as the sons of God, and we are knit together in Christ, and we are part of a body. And that body has various parts, and every joint has to supply that which the body needs. And there's not one part more important than the other, but together we are uh, a body that depends on one another. And so keep that in mind as he says here to them, not only, he says, is do you need to have consideration of these chastings and these troubles that have come upon you that you might be exercised by this, but keep in mind of how your brethren are affected by this. Now, if I go through some little old trial and something and I start casting off my faith and I, I say, oh, well, you know, the Lord can't be trusted, how's that going to benefit my brethren? It's not going to benefit them at all. You know? I mean, that's why, like I always say, I mean, what is the point of coming together and, and meeting with the saints of God when we don't feel like it? Well, because you're not meeting down here because you feel like it. 
Part of the reason that we come together is because of the brethren's sake. Because think what an encouragement it is when the brethren get here and they see you here. And think what a discouragement it is when they come and they see that you didn't care enough about it to show up. <laughs> I know sometimes things happen and we, you know, we, we can't be. But I'm saying the point of coming together is not just for our sake. You know, a lot of times people say, well, I didn't, don't get anything out of it. I think I just... Well, it's not for you primarily. It's for your brethren's sake. The encouragement, the build up the brethren in the most holy faith. And so he says here, therefore, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down. Don't be going around with a moping about the things that are happening to you. Don't be desiring to turn aside from the way of faith because of the troubles that you have, but lift up the hands that hang down. Now, whose hands are hanging down? Not always yours. It may be the brethren whose hands are hanging down. And they're looking at you and they saying, well, if he's going to quit, maybe I'll quit too. But they say, well, you know, he's sticking around. That's a, he's, he's standing firm and fast, and that's a benefit to the brethren as they see one another uh, in those things. And the feeble knees, now the hands that hang down, <coughs> I believe has a, a reference, you know, the scripture many times in the Psalms it says, lift up our hands in praise to the Lord. And the hands lifted up in praise is a, is a sign that a man is, is surrendering his praise up unto God. He lift up the hands. That's what he says, lift up the feeble hands, the hands that hang down. Lift them up. Let the praise of God be seen in the midst of the trouble. And the knees and feeble knees. Now, praying is often considered uh, kneeling in prayer because we kneel in submission to the Lord. And that uh, the feeble knees are those knees that, that uh, you know, when you get the older you get, the harder it is to get down on your knees. And, and uh, so you get those are feeble, they're weak. And so what he's saying, strengthen that. Now, we know we can't do that in the flesh. But the Lord would, through the Word of God, exhort us that we might be mindful of the effect that we have together as a body, that we might strengthen the body, so that the the hands that hang down might be lifted up, the knees that are feeble might be uh, made supple and able to to, uh, do those things necessary. And then he says, and make straight paths for your feet. That is, walk in the straight way. The Lord said, if a man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, anybody that's, that's ever done any plowing or anything knows that you've got to pay attention to what you're doing to, to keep straight. If you're looking behind you, you're going to be have a crooked road or going to be plowed something up. And so he says, here, make straight paths for your feet. You don't need to be wandering from here to there. The Lord said that we be no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but that straight paths, that is, one message. So we don't have a bunch of different doctrines. Our doctrine is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul said, I'm not going to preach anything else to you. There's no other message that we have. You know, the religions of men, they all go off in various directions, don't they? 
And they say, you need to know this. It's okay. They, they say, well, well, yeah. You see, the false religions of the world and the false preaching of Christ that is so prevalent in this day, it's not that they deny that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. They, they don't deny that. But they just got all these little side roads. That, oh, well, it's okay that you know that, but, but, you know, you need to know this. And you need to go over here and, and you need to do that. And you need to, they, they just got all kind of fever roots. Well, we don't have any bunch of fever roots. The brother, we have one root that is forever firmly planted, and it's Jesus Christ. And we come to that place. That's the only place we want to go. I don't want to go off into a tangent of this doctrine and that doctrine. But to preach Christ, that's the place that we go. And so make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Again, speaking about, I believe, speaking to that, those weaker brethren, our brethren in general, we're all weaker brethren at times. Now see, you know, we talk about the spiritual brethren and the weaker brethren. Well, you know, the weaker brethren are not always weak, and the spiritual brethren are not always spiritual. And they kind of swap places sometimes. And so it is a necessary thing that we, that we help one another in this way. And uh, that which is lame, let that which is lame be turned out of the way. If somebody's in, in a place of weakness and we're, we're going to walk in weakness, then we're going to encourage them to walk in weakness. Let that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Brother, we're, we're desiring one another to be strong in the faith. We're not to be critical of one another because we're weak in the faith, because every one of us is weak in the faith in different places. I mean, every man is weak from time to time. But that's not the place that we're... We're not come together to... to uh, tell each other how weak we are, but we come together to confess our faults one to the other that we might be built up in the faith. Isn't that amazing how that, as we confess to one another our own inabilities and weaknesses that we're made strong? Because you see, oftentimes people come together and they talk about how much faith they got. Oh, brother, I did. You were just given this much faith. If you just had this much faith, look at what you could do. And you can do this with this much faith. The problem with that is that the weak brother that's sitting over there that don't find himself to have any faith, he says, oh, my, what am I going to do next? <laughs> but you see, when the man who is walking in faith, confesses that he has no faith of his own, but any faith that he has is that which is of Christ, and that he has no ability of his own, they're encouraged. So we do indeed desire that we be healed and brought together and strengthened in the Lord. And that's not after the flesh, but it's after the way of God. He says, follow peace with all men. And holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now what holiness is he speaking about? He's speaking about Christ. Christ's holiness. 
follow after holiness. Now, if we're going out here telling people what they need to be doing to be holy in the eyes of men, that's a dead end street. Now, some people might think they're going to be holy, and I know there's denominations that call themselves holiness, and uh, they, but they confuse many times what true holiness is. Now, indeed, God's people are called to be holy, to lead holy lives. But brethren, if our eyes are off of Christ for one moment and looking at what we're doing, then that can't be true holiness. I don't know what it is, but the only holiness that we have that's of any use is that which is that which is of Christ. And so he says, follow peace with all men. And holiness. I mean, we're not seeking to fight with one another, but to point one another to Christ. We're not trying to go ahead and stir up trouble. Now, it seems like a lot of times I wind up stirring up trouble, but that's not my purpose. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying, man, I just want to see what kind of a, uh, a mess I can get started today. No, that's not the purpose of it. We're following peace, but we want the peace of Christ, which passes understanding. And following peace and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, I'm sure of this, that the only holiness whereby a man might see the Lord is found in Jesus Christ. Without holiness. Without being set apart. But that's what holiness is. It's sanctification. It's being set apart in Christ. It's being in Christ. That's indeed that without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, excuse me, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. See, we're constant. We're to be those, as the Scripture exhorts us, to be constantly examining ourselves to see that we be in the faith. Not desirous of moving away from the faith. We don't examine ourselves because we want to move away from it. We examine ourselves because we want to be found in it. Do we not? I mean, when I was growing up, that was the last thing anybody wanted you to do was to examine yourself. They just wanted you to think back on when you decided to follow Christ. And that's all you needed to do was think about that. Don't doubt. Well, we're not asking people to doubt, but we are, by the grace of God, compelling the people of God to examine ourselves. Know ye not how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. So it is a good thing that we examine ourselves. Not what we are, but who Christ is. And, and that we are those who would confess that he is our righteousness. When, when uh, Philip asked the Ethiopian eunuch, when he told him about uh, the Ethiopian said, can I be baptized? What does hinder me to be baptized? He says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Well, what did he say? Did he say, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me? Is that what he said? No, he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now that's what he believed. Now dear brethren, that's what God's people are called to believe. Do you believe that? 
I mean, is that the thing to which when you examine yourself, is that what you see? Yes. I believe that Jesus Christ. I'm not just saying in an offhanded way. I mean, is that the thing that delights your heart? Is that the thing that encourages you in the way? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you see, that is the essence of true faith. And it is that which, lest any man looking diligently at that, lest any man fail of the grace of God, that is that he be turned aside from it. Now how especially this was true to these Jews. Do you believe that he is the Son of God? I mean, you ask a, a Muslim. Now there's these people going around saying that the Muslims and the and Christians and the Jews and all these people we're all worshiping the same God. Well, dear brethren, it can't be true. Because you see, the confession of faith is I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and any man who denies that cannot be worshiping the same God whom we worship. Now, it is a matter of faith, and apart from the gift of God, giving a man faith, he can't embrace that. I understand that. But that's the essence of that which we believe. Lest any man uh, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up in you trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, the root of bitterness is that which would cause a man to turn away from that. That's the root of bitterness. And he said, looking diligently to that which you've confessed, you have stood out and you said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he said, don't turn away from that. Because what's left? If a man turns away from Christ, what's left? If you reject Christ, what's left? Now, religious men think, well, they one just gives another, they can take this or they can take that. But those who've been brought to know who Christ is, they know this, that apart from Christ, there is no salvation. Apart from Christ, there's no hope. And so why would we turn away? And that's, that's why he says, you know, in the, in the end of this chapter, we are not of them which draw back into perdition, but of them which believe to the saving of the soul. Why? Because we can't do anything else. Why would we want to? How could we? He is our hope and our expectation. book of uh, Hebrews, and let's look at, uh, begin reading, we'll read there in verse 15, it says, uh, looking diligently, lest any man fail of this chapter 12, Hebrews 12, 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up, 
trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor under blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And in so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through the dark. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifying the removing of those things that are shaken, as of those things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, it is quite often uh, taught and kind of assumed by a lot of people as they read the Bible that God changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, you've all heard how people would say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's a God of wrath and fire and all of those things, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love and uh, forgiveness and grace and mercy. And that, that's a simplistic matter in which men would look at the scriptures, but there's not really any truth in that at all, because God is God. He changes not. Uh, he's not one way part of the through history and one way through the rest of history. But God is, is the same God who created the heavens and the earth in the beginnings, is the same one who shall in the end, bring all of that to an end. And uh, we'll set forth new heavens and new earth according to the good players of his will. And so there's no changing with God. And in fact, as we read here, and, and as we read this book of uh, this particular chapter of Hebrews, where uh, the writer makes the contrast between the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which was that mountain that could be touched, that one which you could see, 
that that was something that was set forth in the eyes of men that was of the earth, and it was right there in their eyes, just like the law was given in a natural way unto men. In fact, Scripture says that the law of God is written in the hearts of men so that they're without excuse. And we've talked about this before. Now, every man doesn't have the Ten Commandments written in his heart. But every man has the law of God written in his heart. Now, the law of God and the Ten Commandments are not identically the same thing. The Ten Commandments arise out of the law of God, and they are a summation of the law of God insofar as men are concerned and as to a uh, demonstration. But the purpose of the giving of the law was so that man might discover what he is by nature. The Lord said to, to Adam, don't eat. I, I've given you, you can eat all these trees, but don't eat of this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what did Adam do? Why did Adam eat that from that tree? <laughs> because that was, his, that was the way that he was. The Lord would show that natural man cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That was the demonstration. That's the demonstration of the giving of the law. Why did the Lord give the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel? Did he give the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel believing and thinking that they were going to keep that? No, he gave that to them so that they might. They were a blessed people because, you see, the Lord showed them what his righteousness was in a manner in which he didn't show to the rest of the world, and he demonstrated to them through the law their inability to approach unto him. Now, we know that by nature and according to the, the ways of men that we always take the things of God which are so actually so very plain and we twist and turn them and make them into something that they're not. And so it is that the contrast is given here is he said you have... Uh, You've not come unto a mount that might be touched. That is, what we're preaching to you is not that which can be grasped and entered into by the natural man. Now, the natural man sitting there before Mount Sinai, he could see the fire and the smoke, and he could see all of those things that went on there, and he could, uh, wondering at it, he could look at it. But he goes on to say, here, you've not come unto the mount that might be touched. That is, you've not come to a natural thing. This is the kingdom of God. is not a flesh and blood. But he said, but you, here as he comes down here, but ye, in verse 22, he said, but ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now that's not something that can be touched, dear brother. That's something that has to be revealed. <laughs> that's something that has to be brought into the awareness of a man and written into the very... Uh, fabric of his being. That's why the Lord said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, ye must be born again. Now, Nicodemus had no idea what he was talking about. 
But the Lord said that to Nicodemus before Nicodemus ever got to answer, ask a question, didn't he? I mean, Nicodemus said, we know you're a teacher sent from God. He said, hold on, Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So Nicodemus, he, he was taken aback from the start. Now, that's really the place that a man's got to be brought to in order for him to ever come to any understanding of spiritual things is to be brought to that place that he understands that this is not a mountain that can be touched. You can't figure this out. You can't learn it like men learned the gospel line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. The Lord said, the day is coming when I will write my laws in their hearts and in their minds, and they shall no more teach every man his neighbor know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Now, what was he talking about? He's talking about the fact that the Spirit of God would teach his people the things of God. And that's what the Lord said when he said he was sending the Spirit. He said that when the Spirit has come, he will lead you into all truth. And he shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, Again, in natural, the natural way that men often approach that scripture, they say, oh, yeah, the truth will set you free. Well, the truth won't set you free, dear brethren. There are many people, the truth is, here, here's the truth. The truth is recorded right here. But the truth, this Bible won't set you free. But when the Spirit of God takes those things that are contained in that and he opens your understanding to the place where you can grasp and see what that is by grace, according to his mercy, then indeed, if the Lord makes you free, then you shall be free indeed. Because this is not a mount that can be touched. It's not something that a man can accomplish on his own or figure out a way to do it. It's not some three-step formula that if you do this, God will do that. But it is God in mercy will visit his people and he will awaken them from the deadness of their sins and he will cause them to see what they are by nature and he will bring them to the place where they will call upon his name. He'll find them. He won't leave a one. He said, my sheep hear my voice. Now, how can they hear his voice if he doesn't speak to them? <laughs> the Lord's going to speak to his people, is he not? The Lord knoweth them that are his, and he's going to bring them out. From every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue on the earth, he will call them according to the good pleasure of his will at the appointed time. And when they hear, they will come. And he'll say, Lord. Who art thou? And he'll teach them. And he'll show them. You see, if there's a man who's hungry and thirsting after righteousness, he got that way because of the Spirit of God working in him. And if he got that way because of the Spirit of God working in him, then the Lord will complete the work that he began. You see, a man's not going to hunger and thirst after God apart from the work of the Spirit of God in him. Now, you always, when, when we get this preaching about election, 
and the fact that God has a people that he chose from before the foundation of the world, you always got in the natural, the natural man will always raise this uh, objection up. Well, so what you're saying is that a man, he, he might want to believe, but because he's not one of the elect, he'll never believe. Scripture never talks about anything like that. Because, you see, brethren, a man will never believe apart from the grace and mercy of God causing him to believe. And if a man does believe, he evidences the fact that the Spirit of God is at work in him. But those who do not believe, they don't believe. They don't care. I never met a man yet that wanted to believe but could and couldn't. I know people say, oh, well, I just can't believe it. Well, that's, that's true. See, a man can't believe the things of, of God. That's what the Lord said to the Pharisees. He said, and ye will not come to me that you might have life. They will not come. But dear brethren, when the Lord is pleased to open a man's heart, he'll come. He'll desire to come. You can't keep him away. He'll be like that woman, uh, that uh, Canaanite woman, or, or she wasn't a Canaanite, but a Syrophoenician woman. She came to the to the Lord and said, Lord, my, my daughter's possessed of a devil. He said, what are you doing in here? He said, I, I'm not sent to anybody but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What are you doing coming down here messing with me? And she, she said, and the Lord said, should I give that which is, uh, should I give that food for this fit for the children and, and give it to dogs? Well, that was discouraging, wasn't it? I mean, Lord, Lord, you're not being very kind to this woman. But you see, that was something at work in this woman. She knew that this one who sat at that table had the thing that she needed. How did she know that? Because the Spirit of God taught her that. And she said, Lord, you're right. Now, you know, in this day of political correctness, somebody would, people would take offense at that, wouldn't it? The Lord said, well, I don't give this to dogs. I mean, basically he said, you're just a dog. Oh, well, who does he think he is? Why? You know, no. She said, Lord, you're right. But oh, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And he said, I have not found so great faith in all of Israel than this woman. That comes right here. He said, as he asked that, so it be done unto you. Now, why? You see, men can't approach, they have no concept in by nature of what this faith is. But it is that which is given to the people of God. Now, when, when, uh, when that, uh, that uh, Philippian jailer cried out to the to Paul, he said, Mr. Brown said, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. 
So how did he, what, what moved the Philippian jailer to, to cry out and say, what must I do to be saved? How did he even know he needed to be saved? But Paul never said anything about, my well, brother, you need to be saved. <laughs> what happened? The Spirit of God came upon him, and, and by the work of that, of the grace of God, he was confronted with his sin, and he knew himself to be lost. And when, when the Apostle Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, I believe. I believe that he believed with all of his heart. Right? Just like the Philippian, the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. But when he said, well, what, 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 what keeps me from being baptized? He said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. He said, I believe. How did he know? What caused that? It was the work of God because you're not come unto Mount, but you're not come to Mount Sinai, but you come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the place where God dwells. Where does God dwell? Scripture says he inhabited eternity, but he also dwells with the broken and the contrite in heart. Because, you see, it pleased God to dwell with his people. Now, why did uh, what what is it that that uh, the Lord hid Himself? The Scripture says the Lord hid the truth. Well, I thought that the Lord was just trying to get everybody to believe. Isn't that what we hear nowadays? I mean, the Lord just out here just trying to get folks to believe, and, and a lot of them won't. But but the, but he's trying to get them to the Lord Jesus when he came. He said, "Father, I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent." But he said, "You revealed them unto me." Because you see, the Lord would reveal His truth to His people, and He would manifest through the hiding of the Word of God from those who cannot see. He would manifest the fact that this is not a mount which can be touched, but it is a mount which only He can show. And that is the magnification of grace, is it not? Because if a man could just, according to his whim, as people tell us, there wouldn't be any grace at all. If it was left up to the free will of men just to do whatever they wanted to, where would grace be? There'd be no grace in that. But the Lord will manifest his grace because, you see, it's not the wise, it's not the prudent, it's not those who think themselves worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven that do. But it is to those who the Lord is pleased to show. And there's no such thing as a proud man in the kingdom of heaven. No such thing. Because, you see, those who are brought in are those that know, apart from the grace of God, they be destroyed. They know they have no standing. They have no place whereon they... Why did the Pharisees 
Quase 10 tombos. Por causa da Bíblia, não sei antes. Quase de Jesus rejeitam o Gospel even to this day. Because they believe themselves to be righteous. They think that by their deeds and by their things that they do in these rituals, and that's the way the religious world is. They think that by the things they do, they make themselves more pleasant unto the Lord. But the Lord will dwell with those who are of a broken and a contrite heart. And the scripture says that we have been brought to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, that place where God is pleased to dwell. And where is that? With his people. You see, the kingdom of God is the, the nation of those true Jews who are circumcised not in the flesh, but in the heart. The Lord pleased to dwell with his people, always has been, and he always will, because they belong to him. And we have been brought to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. John said that he saw a city coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Now, some people think this is a future event. I believe it's speaking about the very fact that this is the, that, that's the gospel. That's what John saw. He saw the Lord coming down and making his tabernacle with men. He saw the revelation and unfolding of the purpose of God to dwell with his people. And that's the place to which we've been called, dear brethren. That's the place. You see, he's contrasting for these, these Hebrew Christians. He's saying, look, you know, this is the place that you, you came in your heritage. But he said, here's where you come by the grace of God. You've been not been brought to that which you could be raised up in and taught and, and follow and find a place of acceptance with God, but you've been brought to this Mount Zion, to a city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now, the word angels, me, is a messenger. An angel is a messenger. Now, there are angels spoken of, as Brother Al pointed out there, that were are heavenly creatures, but that's not what he's talking about here. It's not talking about to an innumerable company of heavenly creatures. We've not been brought to the heavenly creatures. Remember when John would worship the, the angel and what did he say? He said, hey, don't worship me. He said, I'm just a messenger. I've just been sent. But he's not talking about that we've been brought to, uh, to an innumerable company of heavenly creatures, but rather to an innumerable company of those who bear witness to the glory of God, those who bear witness to the redemption of Christ. Because, you see, all of God's people bear witness to that. There are no secret disciples. Those who inhabit the kingdom of, of God are those who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. The most glad thing that that a child of God can read is that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That's a glorious thing. That's what we want is the exaltation of Christ. Not the exaltation of men. To an innumerable company of angels, a host of messengers. A host, let the, 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 the psalmist said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. What do we do? Testify. Peter said, 
sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give to every man a reason of the hope that is within you. Because you see, we've been called to testify unto the glory of his grace. May he ever give us strength to do so. To the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, the General Assembly, the gathering together of the people of God from every nation and tongue. I was just reading this morning about uh, uh, Paul writing to the Colossians. He said this is the mystery that was hid from the foundation of the world. And what was that mystery? That the Lord had brought the gospel to all men, he says, to the Gentiles, that to the Gentiles might be delivered this truth. You see, the Jews thought that God just was, was blessing them. But you see, they were at that mountain that could be touched. That was what they could see. They had no understanding because God had not revealed it yet that he had a people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. And they were but a, a type and a foreshadow of the true nation of Israel. See, Israel thought they were Israel. They didn't understand that they were just a temporary people that the Lord was pleased to use as an illustration of the great love that he had for that people, which are whose names, as he says here, the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, which are written in heaven. Now, how did they get written in heaven? Now, I've heard that explained that when a man believes, God writes his name down in heaven. But it's too late. That's too late. Because the scripture says that those names were recorded from before the foundation of the world. They were written there in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Well, how did he know? How did they know whose name to write in there? What if somebody changed their mind? <laughs> you know how free will works. You might be one thing one day and one thing the next. How did they know? Well, he knew because he ordained it to be so. And because he ordained it to be so, it must be so. And all of those who he loved with an everlasting love, he draws with cords of love, and he causes them to come to the place where they love him. How does that happen? The grace of God. The mercy of God. The drawing power. You see, a man is not, he has no delight in the things of God unless God gives it to him. Oh, he can be religious, folks are religious every day. We're not talking about religion, we're talking about delighting in the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. A precious, a precious word unto those who are of the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn out of every tribe, kindred, and tongue in the earth which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. God is the judge of all. All men shall stand before him and give account. Now that would be a fearful, that is a fearful thing to contemplate, dear brethren, if we're going to stand before him and give an account of ourselves. I wouldn't look forward to that at all, would you? 
Now, some people look forward to it. I had a man, I've shared this with you before, man told me, I asked him, well, what was his hope of uh, entering into heaven? He said he was just going to tell the Lord that he always tried to do the best. He's looking forward to his day in court. You see, he's looking forward to, to pleading his case. Well, dear brethren, any man that's ever been acquainted with his own wickedness and his own depravity would not look forward to a day in court to try to plead with God as to why he ought to enter into heaven. But you see, he is the God, he is the judge of all men. And the Lord said that in that day that he would put the goats on his left side and the sheep on his right. And those who are his sheep they won't say a word because, you see, they're standing there in Christ. And when the Lord, when he looks on the Son, when the Father looks on the Son, what does he see? He sees perfection. He sees the apple of his eye. He sees the one that, that he has loved eternally because he is eternal. He's one with the Father, and he sees those whom he loved in Christ. And he sees them not in their carnal sin, but he sees them in the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the only way he sees the people of God. He sees us in Christ, dear brethren. And that's the glorious place it was stand. Now, if you knew ahead of time that you were going to be, um, what do you call it, acquitted or judged perfectly to have never done anything wrong, you'd look forward to going to court, wouldn't you? If you knew somebody was going to stand in your place and plead your case, who never lost the case and and could and was the son of the judge, I mean, you know, that'd be a glorious thing there, brother. That's the place we've been brought, to God, the judge of all men. And that's not a fearful thing to, to, to come into the judgment if we're justified, if we know we're right by the grace of God and owing totally to the righteousness of Christ we know that he is satisfied. And so we come there. We're brought there to the spirits of just men made perfect. How are we made perfect? Only one way. And that is through the perfections, the beauties, and the glories of Jesus Christ. And dear brethren, that's the place we can brought not to the mouth might be touched, but to the grace of God, the mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ as that one who is our substitute. Greetings and welcome to another hour of discernment 
on February 29, 2016. I did a quick little search today. Today is uh, called Leap Year. It says, you know, although most modern calendar years have 365 days, a complete revolution around the sun, one solar year takes approximately 365 days and six hours. An extra 24 hours thus accumulates every four hours, requiring that an extra calendar day be added to align the calendar with the sun's apparent, apparent, apparent position without the added day. In future years, the seasons would occur later in the calendar, eventually leading to confusion about when to undertake activities dependent on weather, ecology, or hours of daylight. Anyway, that's a little history on, on uh, of course, you know, it's based on the heliocentric model. And uh, I do believe that there is a way to calculate the calendar, and I think they've got it figured out, but it's not they, an extra 24 hours, that, that they approximately 365 days and six hours I just don't think they have a a sundial gauge up there. So anyway, anyway, I just thought that because it's February 29th, I mentioned that. Well, welcome to the broadcast. Today, uh, we're going to continue with uh, the foundations under attack, the roots of apostasy. And Larry Phillips, my guest, is is back to uh, to go into this because uh, today, this morning, we are going to cover in the book. We've come to the We've come to the spot of uh, Pelagius. How do you pronounce that, Larry? Pelagius. Pelagius and semi-Pelagius is the forerunner of Arminianism. But before we get started in the book this morning, I, I want to just briefly recap what we what we finished up, what we covered on on uh, Friday last Friday. You know. The founder of Arminianism, its articles in the Synod of Dort. You, you know, what was interesting to me, Larry, is I always use this, the tulip, I always thought uh, that that referred to Calvinism. Uh, but and, and it, could, you, could you explain, in other words, this was the first attack and tell me if I'm right by saying this. This was the first frontal attack on sovereign grace. And uh, uh, this was the first frontal attack on sovereign grace. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that would be right? Yes. Yes, I would. In fact, you know, it's, um, uh, that, that's why the Senate of the can, you know, convened uh, was to come against this attack. But, uh, we know that <clears throat> there were five uh, points before the answer to uh, these remonstrants. In other words, the uh, Arminius people, the followers primarily, came up with free, free will or human ability, conditional election, universal atonement, resistible grace, and falling from grace. So that was the frontal attack against the doctrines of grace. Uh, they actually came up with their own five points. So really, 
five points that answered the Synod of Dort uh, were not the five points of Calvinism. That's what they've been labeled down through the years. Uh, that's what they're called today. Uh, I think just as a matter of trying to identify it, but really, um, this was a positive response to the teachings of Arminius by uh, a vast, vast number of renowned theologians in 154 sessions that declared that these doctrines that are supposed doctrines that Arminius uh, followers brought to the fore articles of remonstrance were heretical. And so they were proclaimed absolute heresy by the sovereign grace um, theologians. Can you hear me? Okay, yes, I can. And they were, they were, and they were led uh, by forty-three fellow fellow ministers in introducing their doctrine. The Arminian Articles of Remnants to the ecclesiastical authorities. So, so uh, you know, a lot of uh, understand when we get into the, uh, you know get into this, it's always easily the first time I ever when I and I just don't, I have never got into it. But like I said, I know that I was I I I, I was exposed to free willism by. Conrad Gerald when I was out of the truck, so I, I've, I've I've been under a minister that preached sovereign grace, and uh, it wasn't until you know that when you start looking at the five five points, the tulip, that I realized that I was taught that this minister taught me the five points of tulip, and. Uh, you know, this is not to distract from what our study today is, but, you know, I ask you just prior, before we went on online, you know, uh, let me see if I can word this the right, in other words, that uh, once once Arminianism got started, it, it, it it's also fueled sodomy. Comment, Larry? Yes, it's been so evident by our own culture and our own society and the prevalence of Arminianism. And we see that, of course, in the first chapter of Romans, where it says that they worship the creature more than the creator. And uh, once they did that, they began to um, put their approval on uh, men with men and doing that things which was unseemly and, you know, changing the natural use of the, the women into and so the depravity followed you're absolutely right the, the depravity followed worshiping um, you know the, the created things rather than the creator and the creator you know of course uh, today you, you, if you if you mention certain scriptures in the in the Bible, you become very, uh, you become labeled as a hate monger and homophobic and everything else. I, 
I know during my my uh, case against the state of Missouri, I mentioned that Romans 1, as well as the passage in Leviticus, it talks about God um, uh, declaring that this particular sin was an abomination. And um, I can tell you that when I got into those passages, the attorney general's attorney attorneys from the state of Missouri became really, really enraged uh, in proclaiming that I was uh, a bigot, a hate monger, and all kinds of things. Accus allegations were leveled against me. <clears throat> and the reason I bring that up is that's what we're experiencing today. And how does that connect with, you know, how does that connect with state government? Well, <laughs> you know, when you get into uh, interpretation of law, and you we, we touched on this last time, but if you start, you know, we start with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, it starts out by saying all men are created equal and are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, the right to liberty, <laughs> liberty. And that's the free will doctrine, the pursuit of happiness. You know, we have... Yeah, we have no rights under the under our uh, being born and conceived in sin, other than spiritual death, apart from you know the mercy and the grace of God. Also, using Romans chapter one, I mean, you know, is uh, in other words, it states that the, that they 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 uh, they worship the creation versus. The Creator, right? Uh, the, the creation is man, and so they are worshiping self. But and I and I, you know, you now we understand why we're in uh, this. Uh, some people call it the, the self generation, you know, where everybody's into themselves, and of course that goes right into the pseudosciences and psychiatry and psychology, right? Yes, it does, and you know, it, it really in that passage you were alluding to there in Romans, the twenty-fifth verse specifically, it's interesting. It's, it says, "Who changed the truth of God into a lie?" That's what we're talking about, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then right after that, it goes into, you know, the homosexuality issues. So, and then in 28, it says, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So, we see that it all originated from changing the truth of God into a lie. And that's exactly what the Armenian doctrine has done. They, it's changed the truth of God into a lie. And we see in another passage, it says that God is going to give them strong delusion that they will believe the lie. And so it's it's a progression. It is a 
expression. And hence, we have, yeah, we have what we have today in our society. And they're exercising their free will, but which is another part. In other words, to have to have sodomy, you have to have free willism. Right, and, and it's, it's it's a total it's a total south where God is completely where sovereign grace teaches just the opposite. Except Could you expound right. on what I just said? Could you pound on what I expound on what I just said there, Larry? Sure, sovereign grace teaches that man is totally depraved and that he has no inclination for good and that uh, apart from God's saving grace, he is dead and remains dead in his trespasses and sin. However, uh, when the Holy Spirit uh, brings the knowledge of the truth of a man or a woman's depravity uh, to a man or woman's heart, uh, they recognize their their need of a savior, and they flee to the cross of Jesus Christ, and they are given faith and repentance to turn from uh, this condition. And so, the the difference between free will and free grace is that man is, you know, taking the credit for his own destiny, determining his own destiny. Um, I remember when Timothy McVeigh, the guy that supposedly bombed Oklahoma City, I'm not sure he was alone in the matter, but he he was given a death sentence, and they were getting ready to give him the fatal needle but before they did so, they asked Timothy McVeigh if he had any final remarks, and he said, yes, I am the master of my own fate and the determiner of my own destiny. That's Arminianism to the max. That's, that's a hyper-Arminian speaking. <clears throat> you know. And so when someone believes that they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, they can determine their own success, they can determine their own spiritual life, uh, they can determine everything about their life regarding their temporal and spiritual uh, nature. Uh, they're denying the Creator in their lives. Right. Well, you know, it's uh, I and also I put in the in the call room here. Uh, you know, I put up a little page called "It's uh, Sovereign Grace," and and uh, there's three different ministers that there on that page and uh, uh, you know I can I can see it you know and when it gets to the Senate of, of Dort and I look back at my life being raised a, a, a Lutheran in other words I'm starting to see also the fact that what we're what we're talking here Larry wouldn't you see wouldn't you say we're talking about historical history of the doctrines of of, of, of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And, you know, the historical doctrines of Christ are obviously reinforced and made more clear by the Bible. And so, you you know, you have the twofold witness. You have history as well as the revealed Word of God. And so uh, I've often told people that 
when people try to rewrite, especially um, New Testament history, by changing the Bible, it's easy to it's easy to see when there are errors in historical thought and historical presentation. But this, uh, we have the Reformation, and we have, you know, Jacobus Arminius coming against the clearly revealed Word of God, and we have in history the Synod of Dort meeting and coming against these false teachings of Arminius, and uh, we see the response by uh, by the Synod of Dort. By the way, there are three confessions of faith that were a result of all of this, the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Confession, and the Synod of Dort. And today, today, there are some churches that hold to those three witnesses, one of them being the Protestant Reformed Church, holds the Heidelberg Confession, the Canons of Dort, and the Belgian Confession, which all align up with the findings of this conference of 154 sessions by these Reformed theologians. <clears throat> well, I, um, I mean, I just I wanted to review that because that, I mean, how many, like myself, uh, was not, didn't know anything about the Synod of, of Dort, and the only thing that I knew is when I would, when I would uh, express my, uh, when I would say that I God chose Christ chose me that I didn't choose Christ, I was uh, uh, instantly attacked as a hyper-Calvin. Well, I, the truth of it is, I didn't even know what a hyper-Calvin was. I didn't even understand Tulip. You know, but I did know one thing, that I had listened to the Bible, you know, over and over when I was on the truck, and I realized that election was in the Bible. I realized that Christ had chosen me through the Bible. So this is why I kind of uh, want to bring out this, uh, the, the, the founder of Arminianism, its articles in the Synod of Dort. And we uh, covered, uh, covered that on last uh, Friday's broadcast, if anybody wanted to review that. And, cause, uh, and this is what uh, Michael DeSemblin is doing, and, uh, doing. He's given us the history and the eschatology of how Arminianism got started. And with that, Larry, why don't we start today's uh, today's uh, 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 study with on page uh, on page one ten, you know, the top of the page, and that's what I named the broadcast today. Okay, Pelagius and semi-Pelagianism, the forerunner of Arminianism. There's nothing new under the sun. Essentially, the Arminian controversy has been rerun of a similar controversy which uh, more than a thousand years earlier was waged between the British monk Pelagius and Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, as the early church sought to formulate its theology. Pelagius arrived in Rome at the dawn of the 5th century and spent most of his life in that city studying writing and teaching theology. 
he began, began asserting the self-governing ability of man before God. He denied original sin and the depraved state of mankind, as well as the absolute requirement of God's sovereign grace in the salvation of his saints. Pelagius was condemned as a heretic by the Roman Church, and the modified form of his heresy, semi-Pelagian, was also condemned at the Council of Orange in 529. Semi-Pelagianism, the forerunner of Arminianism, essentially teaches that humanity is tainted by sin, but not to the extent that we cannot cooperate with God's grace on our own. In essence, partial depravity as opposed to total depravity. However, the same scriptures that refute Pelagianism also refute semi-Pelagianism. Romans 3, 10 through 18. And I can read that as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this passage most definitely does not describe humanity as only being partially tainted by sin. The Bible clearly teaches that without God drawing a person, we are incapable of cooperating with God's grace. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, John 6:44. Nevertheless, the semi-Pelagian view of man's ability to cooperate and to possess inherent or convert righteousness is widely prevalent today. I'd say that was, was an understatement. It's almost universally uh, promoted today. As R.C. Sproul writes, quote, the basic assumptions of this view persisted throughout church history to reappear in medieval Catholicism, Renaissance, Humanism, Socianism, Arminianism, and modern liberalism. The seminal thought of Pelagius survives today not as a trace of the genteel influence, but is pervasive in the modern church. Indeed, the modern church is held captive by it, end quote. So just just to comment on that, what Sproul was pointing out here is that today uh, we're talking about Pelagius who was came about in the 5th century who came against the teachings of Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. Uh, what R.C. Sproul is saying is this is absolutely... Uh, the modern church today is held captive by the Pelagian view. In, in, in other words, in the view is the view is another offshoot, another flavor of Romanism, right? Exactly. It basically is a work-centered doctrine that denies 
total depravity, and it affirms that man has the ability to be a cooperative agent with God. The idea is that uh, God is our co-pilot. <laughs> and you're being a pilot, you can relate to that. In other words, either God's the pilot, or he's not the pilot. And uh, we don't have... God is not our co-pilot. <laughs> I saw a sign on the church the other day, an Armenian church, you know, and I, this is typical, this is, this is Pelagianism. It was on a church, on the front of the Assembly of God church, and it said, now this is not pick on Assembly of God Day, it just happened to be an Assembly of God church, and it said, um, if God is your co-pilot, change seats. <laughs> well, you know, yes, that's... <laughs> You know, yes, I mean, that's like a, like myself flying the airplane and, oh, I'm safe now because my co-pilot, my <laughs> co-pilot is, is, is Christ. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, the, it's Christ that's in me. Right. Exactly. That, that is flying the airplane, not, not yeah. south, not total south. I, I'm, you know, and I, I'm just starting to see, I seen it when Conrad Gerald explained it to me <clears throat> when I was out on the truck. But I, 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 I realized, that, you know, that in other words, if, and free, free will see, another gives you, when, 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 when you're totally believing in yourself, free willism, it, it makes you a, a partial God. You have a choice between salvation or destruction. Right. It's it's all it's in other words it's, it, and it, it, I know it, it took me a long it, when when Conrad uh, Gerald uh, explained this to me I mean it wasn't until just like last last Friday Larry that I realized that I've been taught that Conrad Gerald I knew you know was a sovereign grace teacher right uh, you know and I re- realized uh, how. And plus, he, in other words, they were not affiliated with any other church. Uh, uh, in other words, they were totally they were totally self sufficient. I mean, they were just in other words, they were not a corporate church. Right. It, you know, in other words, in other words, what what Conrad was teaching was not being preached every week in in another church. You know, like like uh, the corporate churches, they they <clears throat> in a Methodist or Assembly of God, they have a they have a, a curriculum, right? In other words, what one what what one Assembly of God is teaching, they usually teach it all over the, the, the all the all the you know all the yeah they do uh, they have they not only in their uh, you know in their Sunday school movements and their, their programs their bulletins and their you know they have a they have a format that they go by and that's how they kind of keep their uh, their ministers in line, as it were, you know. And uh, I got a, I got a kick one day. My, <laughs> we had heard uh, an Armenian preacher in a church, and uh, he was falling right down the line of semi-Pelagianism. And my wife commented to me. She said, uh, "Well, you can tell that he's had his message pre-approved." That's what we're talking about here. Yes, yes. In other words, in the truth, even by the time I 
I was raised a Lutheran, Arminianism had already got into Lutheranism too, right? Yes. Yes, it had. And, and that's, you know, I shared, I shared before. And I, of course, uh, I didn't really know that much about the modern-day Lutheran church until I went and visited a church in Lee Summit, Missouri, called Martin Luther Lutheran Church. And after the service, the minister, you know, was greeting me and my family and asked me if he would, if I would like to visit a few minutes in his study. And so I said, sure. And so I went in and and he asked me what brought me to Martin Luther Lutheran Church. And I said, well, uh, I've just been doing some studying of Luther and I really, you know, have have admired his writings, especially the book, The Bondage of the Will. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. And um, he said, oh, Larry, he goes, that was a long time ago. He goes, that was then, this is now. And I said, well, well what, what do you mean, you know? What, what? Well, he goes, I don't, I don't, and the church today does describe everything that Luther, you know, set forth. Uh, you know, he said the Pines of the Will was a classic book, but we don't adhere to um, to to, to all of his positions. And what he was actually saying is that, and I found out later when I started looking at the uh, confessions of the Lutheran Church that they uphold to a semi-Pelagian position on this: that man has the ability in and of himself to uh, to make a decision, you know, to accept or reject the gospel. So, so in other words, from the, from the time of the Reformation until now, I mean, in other words, they are not to teaching what Luther taught. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and you know, and I, this is this is what I'm starting to see, and I I'm learning a little bit how to explain a little bit. The, uh, the founding of this country and what we got with the government that it did give us, they did, we did get, we did get a universal government. We got an arm, in other words, but we, we got an Armenian government, but that didn't change the, what was in the, what was in the culture and the people, the people were in those days, I mean, there was, there was, of course, it was already infiltrated, but there were sovereign grace teachers all, all through our history. Yeah, right, Larry. Yes, and it, and it was, um, it included both those um, from the Presbyterian uh, ranks as well as those from the old school line Baptist who held to election and predestination and and all of these uh, five points that were we're talking about. And so there was an influence, especially in the 13 colonies, the original colonies. We know that some of those colonies, um, you know, came to the United States because they were being persecuted from whence they came. We see the Dutch uh, reformed from the Netherlands coming here. We see the Covenanters from Scotland uh, that came here. Um, so there was a prevalence uh, in in the original thirteen colonies, 
Uh, of course, then we had, <laughs> we don't want to forget the uh, one Roman Catholic colony, Maryland. And it was one of the few, but as far as the, you know, the majority, by far the majority consensus was not at that time Roman Catholic. It was in the very extreme minority. But today that has totally changed. As we can see over time uh, with the Jesuit influence and the Basilica uh, there in Washington, D.C., <laughs> mocking the Roman Basilica in Vatican, uh, and we see with the Pope coming here just in the last three months to, you know, uh, and just proclaiming, uh, you know, his, pretty much his sovereignty over the United States and its foreign policy. And at the United Nations, we see how it's come full circle. But at that time, you're absolutely right. That during Before the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and before the Jesuit influence of Thomas Jefferson and and George Washington and, and Ben Franklin and if you do a study on Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and those uh, other founding fathers you'll find that they were very much uh, uh, I mean Thomas Jefferson wrote his own Bible, cut out major major portions, denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ and you know p- promoted the free will of man uh, you know, through his whole, all of his writings, his documents, and so on. You know, I, I think I, I'm going to insert right here. And I, I was reading yesterday a little bit on American freedom and Catholic power. It was a book that was written in 1949. But I thought this was such an interesting point because I noticed something in, in history that very few historians, especially in America here, how the word Jesuit gets left out of history. And let me read this. It says, they're talking about the Roman Catholics. He's talking about the Roman Catholic system. And this, this, you know, and and it's going to relate to Arminianism. The same system of control exists in America Catholic colleges. They are chiefly the property of religious orders are controlled, not by boards of laymen, but by priests, bishops, and archbishops. Most of the college presidents of the Catholic institutions in America are Jesuits, subject to the devil discipline of the church and their own order. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Isn't that interesting? In other words, well, why did I bring that up? Well, because, because Roman Catholicism is Arminianism. It is. It is, and we see, we saw earlier on how that the Jesuits even called Arminianism their foundation, you know. And just to re, just to re, uh, restate, uh, the following is an extract from a Jesuit letter. We have now many strings to our bow. We have planted the sovereign drug Arminianism, which we hope will purge the Protestants from their heresy. And it flourisheth and beareth fruit in due season. I am at this time transported with joy to see how happily all instruments and means, as well greater as smaller, cooperate with our purposes. But to return to the main fabric, our foundation is Arminianism. And I probably could reestate right here what, what 
the importance of this because Arminianism is a man-centered religion. Right. And sovereign grace is Christ-centered. Exactly. At the very, at the very beginning of, of this country, the colleges, the, the colleges were, was, you know, there was colleges that, you know, were set up and were, they taught sovereign grace. But the reason I brought this up about the Roman, about Roman Catholicism, you see, the way Roman Catholicism works, it, it, I mean, the people do not pick the bishops and the archbishops, and they have nothing to do. The Roman Catholic people in the street that are paying and praying have nothing to do with the hierarchy of their education. It's all predetermined for them. And this is what's happened in America in 2016 now. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of earth-shaking, but we have to be realistic. We've got to be realistic. And, and, and understand that, that you know that's not going to change our position, but the elect child of God is not going to change his position. But we can see the arm of Arminianism that has that has crept into all our pseudosciences. It, it's the government, and so that's why this this study is a very chilling study because there's you know uh, I know there's there's few books that are that are are written about refuting Arminianism and giving us the history. And this is why this book is, has been such a uh, which it's, it's it's been it's really set me back because I I realized how profound and what this really means and why now I can understand some of the things that I see out in in the world today in 2016. You know, so anyway, go ahead, Larry, with the, the next. Okay, well, to continue on, Pelagius, Augustine, and Luther's The Bondage of the Will. In A.D. 411, with the onset of Alaric's second raid on Rome, Pelagius fled the city with his pupil, Celestius, finding a safe haven in North Africa. In the purposes of God, this brought him into orbit, into the orbit of Augustine. Although Pelagius soon moved on to Palestine, he left his protege, Celestius, behind at Carthage. But both, both men continued to promote the heresy of the autonomy of man and his free will over against the free grace and sovereignty of God. Pelagius was shocked by the prayer in Augustine's Confessions, which stated, quote, Grant what thou dost command, and command what thou wilt, end quote. Which seemed to remove from men all freedom, and therefore all responsibility. I want to just interject one comment here. I think this will help, uh, help the listener. There's a difference between proclaiming the responsibility of man and the accountability of man to God. In other words, Man is not responsible for his own salvation. God did that. But that does not alleviate man's accountability to God. And oftentimes the Arminians will use this to compute, totally confuse the issue and saying, you're denying the responsibility of man. Yes, we are denying the responsibility of man for his salvation. 
but we are not denying the responsibility of man for their accountability to their God and to their Creator. So that's, I just wanted to point that out. Continuing, Pelagius certainly thought that man needs God's grace, but by grace he meant man's power to choose the good and God's revelation of that good in the law, the prophets, and above all, in Christ. Each soul, he thought, comes into being in the same condition as Adam. There's no inherited guilt, no sin inherited from Adam by virtue of the fall. The confrontation between Augustine and Pelagius about the will of man in his fallen condition was re-echoed 1,100 years later in Erasmus' semi-Pelagian diatribe and Luther's answer in The Bondage of the Will. So just to point out, the book The Bondage of the Will was a response to Erasmus, who was a semi-Pelagian. In other words, uh, Erasmus promoted that man had a bent towards sin, but had a free will to either accept or reject Christ. Going back to the book, the able reformer like Augustine knew from scriptures that sinful man has a will, but his will is enslaved and bent towards evil and can do no good at thing. For until man is converted and is renewed by the Holy Spirit, his will is captive to Satan and is taken captive by him at his, Satan's will. The publisher's comments on the bondage of the will state that, quote, the bondage of the will is a fundamental to understanding of the primary doctrines of the Reformation. In these pages, Luther gives extensive treatment of what he saw as the heart of the gospel. Uh, going on, J.I. Packer and O.R. Johnston added... Can I make a Yes, yes. Comment, Larry? Yeah. It's, you know, I thought, you know, in these pages, Luther gives extensive treatment to what he saw as the heart the heart of the gospel. And you know, Larry, that's what I've been ex- been, been experiencing as I realized that I, I, I've known Christ, but I haven't, I don't understand, I had never understood the heart of it. Right. And, right. and here I was, here I was uh, uh, raised a Lutheran, but you know, in other words, I never, I, I was never referred to or, you know, and learned the history of Martin Luther. You know, but I, that just struck me that is it's what is the heart of the gospel, you know, and, and that's what Arminianism has done. It's to, people talk, they talk, but they're not talking about the heart of the gospel. Absolutely, it's it, it's, it's the, you know, and, and for the first time, I realized, you know, that the whole Bible is about Christ. In the very first verse, in the beginning, God, in the, you know, created heaven and earth. And then we have John. We realize Christ was at, at the creation. Did, yes. I, did I state that right? Yes, yes. I yeah. mean, you know, we have, like you said, in the beginning God created, and then we have, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we have both the creation and the <laughs> The rebirth, or the re, you know, the quickening, you know, and we see that in John three sixteen, you know, you must be born again. So we have the first birth, and then we have the second birth, and uh, yeah. So as we go on, uh, uh, 
we have the bonding. J.I. Packer and O.R. Johnston added to this in the historical and theological introduction to the bondage of the will by stating, quote, The bondage of the will is the greatest piece of writing that came from Luther's pen. In its vigor of language, its profound theological grasp, and the grand sweep of its exposition, it stands unsurpassed among Luther's writings. Free will was no academic question to Luther. The whole gospel of the grace of God he held was bound up with it and stood or fell according to the way one decided it. In particular, the denial of free will was to Luther the foundation of the biblical doctrines of grace and a hearty endorsement of that denial was the first step for anyone who would understand the gospel and can come to faith in God. The man who has not yet practically and experimentally learned the bondage of the will in sin, has not yet comprehended any part of the gospel. Justification by faith only is a truth that needs interpretation. The principle of sola fide, by faith alone, is not rightly understood till it has been anchored as the broader principle of sola gratia, by grace alone. For to rely on oneself for faith is no different in principle from relying on oneself for works. Yet, another comment on this work of Luther's offers that Luther here refutes the Romish notion of free will. Notice he specifically says that he is refuting the Romish notion of free will in man and upholds the absolute sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners, as well as justification by faith alone, Luther clearly saw the issue of free will as the primary cause of his separation from Rome. That's a pretty strong statement right there. He saw the issue of free will as the primary cause of his separation from Rome. The Bible teaches that... Go ahead. Well, it is, and also, I went back, you know, you know, you know it's, it's, it's the heart, I, earlier before, the heart of the gospel, but with, with, with free will, with Arminianism, it, 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 it I'm going to read what it says here. Yet another comment on, the, on this work of Luther's offers that Luther here refutes the Romish notion of free will in man and upholds the absolute sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners, as well as justification by faith alone. Again, Luther clearly saw the issue of free will as the primary cause of his separation from Rome. This was not taught to Walt when I was raised when I was 13 or 14 years old, and, and it's kind of chilling to think that I'm learning it when I'm 71 years old. Praise God. You know. Well, that's exactly right. You know, I could, I could reaffirm that as well. You know, I saw the issue of free will as the primary cause of my separation from, you know, the movement that I was raised in. Uh, you know, and, and it was not an easy thing because it was it was having to give up my entire family, pretty much, as well as all the people that I knew from 
grade school through high school, you know. So um, anyway, it goes on. It says the Bible teaches that faith itself is and has to be a gift of God by grace and not of self. You know, I just want to make a comment here. Uh, Walt made a really good observation earlier on when he talked about the educational system being um, so rigid in its requirements. You can go to any, either secular college or seminary, doesn't matter, and you'll find that you are told what particular classes you have to take (laughs) to, to get a degree or to get a, a doctor divinity degree. And uh, so it's not it's not of God. It's a, it's a self-centered uh, teaching. The Bible teaches that faith itself is has to be a gift of God by grace, not of self. Though the will is never forced nor destined by any necessity or nature to perform evil, yet Sinful man has lost ability of will to perform any of the spiritual good which accompanies salvation. He is not able by an act of the will to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not willing to be converted. Unless the Lord intervenes, man remains bound, for men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. A corrupt tree bears corrupt fruit. That is all it can do. The natural man is not able by his own strength to turn to God or even dispose himself towards God. For no man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. He is dead in trespasses and sin. He is at enmity against God. Grace or unmerited favor is essential for man does not seek God. It is God who seeks him. It is instructive to know that all the 16th century reformers were originally Augustinians. In other words, they took the position that Augustine took against Pelagius. They believed in the total depravity of man's nature and the absolute sovereignty of God's grace. you have any comments, Walt? Can you hear me? Yes. Well, uh, it's, it's uh, the last sentence, you know, the absolute sovereignty of God's grace. I, I always remember, you know, it's, it's in other words, I shared this with another brother yesterday. You know, uh, this, this is kind of a dividing light in this world today when you start talking about uh, doctrines and you start talking about tulips. You know, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. In other words, works works and grace are separate. Anytime you mix in works, grab something to bring in works, it get destroy I mean, it destroys grace. You can't have two. You can't you can't have in other words they They'll preach, I've heard, for by grace you are saved, but they don't want to, 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 to preach the last half of it. It is a gift of God. And oh, when you get into this verse, I, and now I, I didn't know at the time, I've, I've, I've quoted this verse for certain people, and boy, as soon as I quote that verse, 
I'm a hyper-Calvinist. Of course, Walt didn't even know what a hyper-Calvinist was, but I knew what I knew what the verse said. It is a gift of God. Right. Right. And I, I just want to say here, just so people can understand where Walt and I are coming from, we're speaking here as it relates to man's salvation. Okay? We're not here you know, denouncing that any man do any good works or, or to, you know, help the poor or to visit those in prison or to give someone a cup of cold. Well, no. Well, but what we have to understand is we have to understand the chronological order of things, okay? You know, we have to realize that, that, that Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. And I often tell people, you know, it's a package deal. According to Ephesians, it says that we've been chosen in him from the foundation of the world to be what? <laughs> it says, to, you know, to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay. We're not, you know, Paul throughout his epistles says he charges us to uh, not to forget to do good works and, and, and so on. But what we want to make very, very clear, okay, is that good works have nothing to do with our eternal salvation. Nothing. Okay? Christ is the one that paid the penalty on the cross. Christ is the one who who, who was a perfect sacrifice, became our sin bearer. You know, back to what this medical doctor told me. You know, he said, if you... If you do enough good works that outcome all your bad works, you probably have a shot to get in heaven. And I told him, I said, you know, if I started doing good works right now, it wouldn't outweigh all the bad works that I've done. That's why Christ came. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we, I want to make sure people know that we're not against doing good works. It just doesn't have anything to do with our salvation. Okay. Uh, where were we at? Where were we at here? Uh, anyway, Pelagius denied all of this and instead asserted the full ability and potential of the human will. He taught that man can eliminate sin from his life by the exercise of his will and can keep the commandments of God if he really wants to. <laughs> he arrived at this conclusion by twisted logic that concluded, quote, God would not command man to do what man cannot be done by man, end quote. Thus, Pelagius, in considering the will, ignored, or rather played down, the consequence of Adam's fall. The scriptures show us that man was created able, but lost his ability through his apostasy. But Pelagius insisted that no obligation could ever be placed outside of man's limitless capacity for good. He established the definitive Pelagian view that if God commands anything, we must be able to obey. God has no right to command if we are unable to obey. <laughs> you have any comments on that, Walt? No, no. <laughs> it just the, the thing that I I just want to say is that uh, you know if you really I don't want to get off subject, but I just want to encourage anyone listening in to do a study on the New Covenant. 
we're under a new and better covenant. We're no longer under law. We're under grace. And there's no one on the planet that has the ability to perfectly keep all the commandments of God. And uh, I know that's a big statement, but that's as far as I'm going to go with that today. Going on, in July A.D. 415 at the Synod of Jerusalem, Pelagius was condemned in absentia. In December of the same year at the Synod of uh, Lydda, Diosopolis, he appeared but managed to escape condemnation by what B.B. Warfield has described as follows, quote, only by a course of the most ingenious, disingenuousness, and of the leading the synod to believe that he was anathematizing the very doctrines that he himself was proclaiming, Pelagius obtained his acquittal by a lying condemnation of a tricky interpretation of his own teachings. In the words of Augustine, heresy was not acquitted, but the man who denied the heresy, and he would have himself been anathematized if he had not anathematized the heresy. So that's what's called sophistry, folks. In other words, uh, Pelagius was really good at, you know, deceiving people. Going on, as with Arminius and Pelagius, we see a man purporting to contend for truth who brims with equivocation. He exploited his escape from condemnation to the maximum falsely claiming an endorsement for his heresies. But he was soon to be undone. A two-pronged attack by Augustine and Jerome, a powerful combination, led to Pelagius' condemnation by two African councils in 416, a decision upheld by Pope Innocent I, who in 417 excommunicated Pelagius and Celestius. Though Innocent's successor, Zosimus at first overturned this verdict in action. He was shaken by such a storm from the African bishops that he not only changed his mind, but he also wrote a letter requiring Western bishops to endorse the condemnation. On May 1st, 418, the teachings of Pelagius were declared to be anathema. His supporters deserted him in droves to save their own skin, although his heretical teachings on free will continued underground. After this, nothing more is heard of Pelagius. One source had him dead by 420. Another report says he lived at least another 20 years. Despite his formal discrediting, his teachers kept resurfacing for more than a century until they were firmly repudiated at the Council of Orange in 529. The conclusion of the canons of the Council of Orange begins with a clear and comprehensive statement that states, quote, and thus, according to the passage of Holy Scripture quoted above, or the interpretation of the ancient fathers, we must, under the blessings of God, preach and believe as follows. The sin of the first man has so impaired and weakened free will that no one thereafter can either love God as he ought, or believe in God, or do good for God's sake, unless the grace of divine mercy has preceded him. We therefore believe that the glorious faith which was given to Abel the righteous and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to all the saints of old in which the Apostle Paul commends in extolling them, Hebrews 11, was not given through natural goodness, 
as it was before to Adam, but was bestowed by the grace of God. And we know and also believe that even after the coming of our Lord, this grace is not to be found in the free will of all who desire to be baptized, but is bestowed by the kindness of Christ, as he has already been frequently stated, as the Apostle Paul declares, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Uh, Philippians 1.29 And again, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of your own doing, it's not, but it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 and as the Apostle says of himself, I obtain mercy to be faithful, 1 Corinthians 7.25, 1 Timothy 1.13. He did not say, because I was faithful, but to be faithful. And again, what have you that you did not receive, 1 Corinthians 4.7. And again, every good endowment, every good endowment, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, that cometh down from the Father's floodlights, James 1.17. And again, no one can receive anything except that is given to him from above, 1 John 3, 27. There are innumerable passages of Holy Scripture which can be quoted to prove the case for grace, but they have been omitted for the sake of brevity because further examples will not really be of use for a few are deemed sufficient, end quote. Truth is ever hammered out on the anvil of error, and in the purpose of God, the controversy was the vehicle used to define the doctrines of free and sovereign grace. Cometh the hour, cometh the man, and the servant of God in his watershed and the development of Christian theology was Augustine of Hippo. For more than a millennium, his teachings on the sovereignty of God and his gift of free grace were held dear by true believers until the controversy was revived by Arminius and his followers in the 17th century. Like all of Adam's fallen race, the regenerate Augustine was most certainly prone to err, but at the same time, the Lord endowed him with an insight into the workings of his sovereign grace that has not been surpassed. Augustine's influence was enormous. B.B. Warfield described the Reformation as the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over his doctrine of the Church. R.C. Sproul has written that the Reformation witnessed the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrines of grace over the legacy of the Pelagian view of man. It was Augustine who was the bulwark chosen by God to stem the tide of error, which has ebbed and flowed over the centuries through the teachings of Pelagius. Augustine was the first of the Church Fathers to codify the doctrines of grace and to confront and refute the impostures of human free will in salvation. He recorded preachings and writings against Pelagius. I'm sorry. His recorded preachings and writings against Pelagius are so voluminous that we cannot begin to explore them here. It suffices to say that his wisdom was acknowledged even by Arminius and that he was the main principally principle responsible under God for the fact that the false teachings of Pelagius are widely recognized as such today. What is mystifying, humanly speaking, is that notwithstanding the above, the heresy of free will and salvation has repeatedly resurfaced, albeit in modified guises, 
and that the doctrines of free and sovereign grace have been assailed at diverse times despite Augustine's masterful exposition of these cardinal doctrines and his systematizing of them into a whole body of divinity. Can you hear me, Larry? Yes. Okay, I'll just make sure I was muted. <clears throat> well, that, that ends... Uh, uh, that chapter and next and uh, tomorrow we're going to cover chapter 12 Catholicism and Arminianism in England and and France during the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries but you know uh, you, you know when we do look we look back now in 2016 uh, when, when, when we start understanding some of this history it, it is dominant in other words, it's it's the dominant theology. I mean, you know, Catholicism has got many faces, and it's not just and it's you know, and it's not just the word Roman Catholic Church. I mean, free willism has crept over, and you know, and all. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's what is the, all the. I mean, I'm sure there are some seminaries and Bible colleges that don't teach it, but as, as a rule, uh, the dominant theology that is taught is free will. Is that right, Larry? Yes, and, and they masquerade. You know, here's the thing that makes it so dangerous. The Even many, many of the so-called Reformed and Presbyterian seminaries today that say they're coming from a Reformed perspective uh, uh, still uh, masquerade their doctrine in semi-Pelagianism, meaning they use terms like potentiality, uh, availability. Uh, in other words, God made it possible for all men to be saved. That's universalism. Um, God gave you the potential to accept him. God made salvation available to all men. So that is the same thing that Martin Luther was coming against Erasmus because Erasmus was doing exactly the same thing. He was promoting the semi-Pelagian doctrine. And don't, don't, don't you also, that Arminianism, Arminianism isn't it, it is the fuel of the... Uh, but I lost my train of thought there. Well, it, it's a fuel of idolatry. I mean, we know that uh, whenever man has the uh, idea that they can supersede God, in other words, they they have the final say in things, that God is just, you know, I heard a guy tell me one time, he said... He said, my theology is pretty much the world's theology. He said, my theology is that God um, wound this universe up like a clock and let her go. And he said, I'm here to tell you, Larry, that God is more sovereign by giving you free will. <laughs> that's the whole, that's, that is what is being promoted by the seminaries out there, that God is more sovereign by giving man free will, which is absolutely, totally 
irrationality. God cannot be more sovereign by putting man on the throne. God says that I will not share my glory with another. He says, God says, you know, I, he, he goes, in Ephesians, you know, through Paul, he says he worked with all things after the counsel of his own will. And Paul also tells us, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. And again, to remind everyone, you know, when the Gentiles came to uh, be shown the gospel, it st states in Acts that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And so we see this aspect of election and predestination. We see the uh, affirmation of the total depravity of man, the unconditional election by God, the particular redemption, the irresistible grace, and the final perseverance of the saints. Totally, totally reinforced throughout, like Walt said, throughout the whole Bible. Not just the New Testament, but throughout the whole Bible. You know, it, and, and, and we have to in Arminianism, especially in uh, in the in the twentieth century, uh, I mean, paved the way for 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 psychology and counseling. Right. Most because right. most of the, most not all, but most of the ministers now they get a degree in counseling, they get a degree in in psychoheresy. And that's I mean, right. You know, I mean, one of the most prominent. Uh, biblical counselors today is a person who says that he's reformed. His name is Jay Adams. And uh, you can go on Sermon Audio and you can listen to Jay Adams. And I've met Jay Adams. I've sat down and talked with Jay Adams. And I can tell you that uh, you know, I know where Jay Adams went to get his counseling degree. <laughs> it happened to be you know, real close to me, University of Missouri, Kansas City. And uh, the problem is that when we take on the role that we can do God's work, okay, even if we're trying to say that we are just a, you know, we're just a facilitator, that's a word that counselors use often, a facilitator. That's like saying we're a <laughs> co-pilot. That's like saying we're a you know, cooperative agent with God. That's like, you know, and so I think that there's a lot of deception going on. And I think that also some of these folks, believe it or not, I believe that there are actually some of these folks that are deceived. They actually think they are doing, you know, God's service. Um, and we're going to see down the road how that, how that, you know, progressed to the point where you've got people like Charles Finney coming on the scene, you know, that just totally, I want to just read one short thing so people will know what we're going to be covering here in the future. Charles Finney was a man who created decisionism, you know, and he was extremely influential. He still is. He has been described as the icon of modern evangelicalism. Moral Majority Leader Jerry Falwell said that Finney was one of my heroes and a hero to many evangelicals, including Billy Graham. And uh, 
You know what one of Finney's <laughs> most popular sermons was? Quote, sinners bound to change their own hearts, end quote. That was Finney's most popular. That's what I grew up under, Finney, Finney's doctrine, Charles Finney. And it says here that um, Charles Finney had what was called new measures, in quote. This included the anxious seat, the mourner's bench, an invitation or altar call. He instituted the emotional tactics that led to fainting and weeping and other excitements. He could work a crowd to a fever pitch into fanaticism, fainting, shakings, weepings, and so on. Decisions for Christ must be made. <laughs> okay. Now, the only reason I point that out, that is the ultimate hyper-Arminianism. To think that we can we can create, you know, we used to sing this song when I was coming up as a, as a child, you know, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Another song we sing was throw out the lifeline. You know, another song we sang was I surrender all. But the most the most prominent song that was sung to me as a child was almost persuaded five times in an altar call. Emotional hyper, you know, people were just got to hyper emotionalism as almost cannot avail, almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail, almost but lost. So what I'm pointing out here is that, look, man can do nothing to save himself. And God is the author and the finisher of our faith, and we can only look at Christ. You know, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ's solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, and stand before his throne. On Christ's solid rock, I stand all other ground is sinking sand. <clears throat> well, the closest statements here that I'm going to make, Larry, is I've been listening, and I, what comes to my, comes to my mind is is how Arminianism has checked, has affected the church, and how it's affected the family. Because, see, if you go back 70, 80 years ago, I mean, I don't like to sound like the good old days, but what has changed in our culture is families used to work out their problems at home using the Word of God because they were Christ-centered. But as Arminianism crept into our culture, into all the pseudosciences and the counseling, it took, it took the church away from mending, their, mending families and put it in the hands of a, of a pseudoscience counselor. And that, that is why we see all, in other words, when you go to one of these pseudoscience counselors, it's $70 an hour. 
seventy dollars an hour, and that's that's, that's probably it. that's 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 that's, that, that's the that's the uh, budget rate. Okay, <laughs> that yeah. I mean, in other words, in other in other words, what I'm see. So why is Arminianism so important? You know, I've seen a documentary. Oh, I I I, I said to myself, I wish I could find this now. It was about um, they took. Uh, they had about five or six candidates, and they uh, they interviewed them, and they wanted to make a, 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 a they wanted to make an Armenian preacher. Really, is what what I'm saying. And uh, they came to the one candidate, and then they they trained him, and schooled him. And as I'm watching this, and I'm recalling this, they were teaching hardened hardened Armenianism. And they went down to a town in Texas. And uh, they run some uh, ads, and they got an audience, and they made this man right off the street. They made him a Benny Hinn, a Kenneth Copeland. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's in other words, in other words, what, to to the Arme, to the to the full extent of Arminianism is is everybody remembers the old snake salesman. <laughs> well, that, that's that's what that's what Arminianism. Hyper Arminianism is is, is is well. You you you're so close. I mean, you're right on track. I'll tell you, this is an actual true story. I'm getting ready to relay, um, and I'm not going to mention any names because it'll get me in too much trouble. But anyway, uh, there there was a young man who went through Armenian uh, school to be a minister, and uh, I was asking. You know, how is it that they selected this person? And now this was his mother's response to me. She said, I'll tell you why he was chosen to be an Armenian minister. Because he is so good at making people laugh. And if he can make people laugh, he can make people cry. It's mind control, I'm telling you. It's mind control. It's manipulation. And so here they're going to choose someone to get up and minister the gospel because he can make, tell jokes and make people laugh, you know. And that's just, it's a man-centered philosophy. It's humanism. It reminds me, you know, and I would suggest, you know, to all of our listeners, if you want to get some insight, and to what Larry Phillips had to go go through in his his uh, university instruction, you know, we we were asked to read the the Communist Manifesto and also read the Humanist Manifesto and also read some of Darwin's, <laughs> you know, only to just so you can have the discernment to see what is absolutely taught in these universities to these people who are supposed to be counselors and are going into clinical psychology and, and, and industrial psychology. And, and at the high, you know, industrial psychologists are your human resource managers over large corporations. So it is. It's it's so prevailing in our society, not just in the churches, in the corporations, in our government. You know, we see it so, uh, you know, and, and I'm not going to mention any names, but just just look at the top political candidates running on both sides of the aisle, and what can you see? 
you can see they're analyzing their audience and they're they're altering their speech as to who their audience is. <laughs> and so it's all man centered. It has nothing to do with uh, with the Bible or with God. Well, and I think it also what you what we're bringing what we're bringing out here is we see it in the in the in churchianity. We see it in churchianity, but it's also church churchianity has become a pseudoscience with psychology. Yeah. You know? I mean that's that is that is the bottom line. Well it's just I'm gonna I'm going to uh, bring this broadcast to a close. Uh God bless I, I know some of this is kinda heavy stuff, you know, but uh, when we're Christ centered, I mean uh just stay on the rock, you know. And and so when you see one of these uh Arminiast Tonight is the 29th, 28th of February, 2016, and you joined us for the evening service of the Weatherby House Church. And uh, you know we've been meeting here for going on nine years, and God has been good to us and giving us fellowship with some brothers in Christ over the internet and who uh, believe the Bible. It's good to know that there's still people out there that believe God's Word. And uh, I think what we'll do is uh, Start by singing 